Welcome to the pollsters. I'm Margie O'Mara, Democratic pollster with GBAO. And I'm Kristen Soltis Anderson, Republican pollster with Echelon Insights. And each week we bring you the polls driving the latest news in politics, tech, and pop culture. So you were out last week, and I decided I would be out too. <laughs> Sorry, guys. <laughs> how was your how was your podcation? It, it, it was nice. I mean, I was trying to like not do a staycation, but like just dial just a you know a teeny tiny people who know me be like what are you talking about you respond to my emails at all hours. yeah I was just trying to do like just slightly less like what if I experimented with like 95% margie instead of like 150% margie and it was hard but also oh I've been operating relaxing. at 85% Kristen since the start of the year and it's been glorious yeah I mean I see, I see I get it I totally I'm like oh this is you know but uh, but it's hard I don't know if that's a I don't think I can keep up the pace of 95% Margie. I think I have to go back to like 125 to 150% Margie. But anyway, you were truly out. I was in Mexico. I went on a trip with the U.S.-Mexico Foundation and ACYPL, the American Council of Young Political Leaders. They're the group that I went to New Zealand with last year. Um, and I connected them with some folks at the Mexican embassy. They had not done an exchange to Mexico in decades. So they put this together. Um, the idea was to give the, – the, there was a sense that American political operatives and policymakers have a perception of Mexico that's incorrect, that when they think about Mexico, they think about the stuff at the border. They think right. about cartels. They think about cheap labor and, like, manufacturing that's, like – I mean, just like right. – the, the, and that they wanted to be like, look, these perceptions are not right. So come down and we're going to show you – the full range of stuff. Right. And so it was It was a great trip. I mean, we got to talk to a woman who has launched Mexico's second stock exchange. Like most developed economies have more than one stock exchange mm-hmm. in their country. But Mexico's only had one for like a century. And so this woman, M- Maria Ariza, like has started a stock exchange and was like very candid about like, here's what it's like to be a woman in business in Mexico. Here are the times that people have called me Nina in meetings. Like, I mean, it was like yeah. hearing her stories <laughs> were incredible. Um, we traveled to a neighborhood called Iztapalapa, which mm-hmm. is their words, not ours. The most dangerous neighborhood in Mexico City. That was fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, we it was you take a bus down these like really tiny streets and you are in a neighborhood where there's no running water. And right. they like show you that they've got this community center it's kind of just like in like a cinder block with a tin roof building, but right. like where they're teaching kids to like make like cool arty T-shirts that right. they can then sell in the center of the city. And it's a way for them to make money that's not like drugs and crime. Right. And, um, so we got, you know, we they didn't just keep us in like the, you know, swanky parts of town, although we did get to have great food in the swanky parts right. of town, too. Um, we went down to Puebla. We visited an Audi factory. That was very cool. Couldn't take any pictures there. It was real sad Aww. because that's like the quintessential campaign ad photo is like, I've got goggles on and I'm looking on thoughtfully <laughs> as someone's welding something and there are sparks flying. And I was like, oh, I'm not going to get that photo because right, right, right. we had to leave our phones in lockers. But um, it was it was wild. The factory was it's two years old. So it's like beautiful, pristine. There's no people working in it because the robots own us all now. Mm. That was wild. Like, two, like the first half of the factory we walked through, like multiple football fields worth of space, and there are like three dozen people I saw. Ugh. It was wild, mm. um, but it was it was an extremely densely packed agenda. So, and normally when one of us travels, we do still try yeah. to make a show work. But there was. I was on a bus in Mexico City traffic a lot. That would have not been conducive to podcasting. Yeah, look, I mean, we don't take a lot of breaks. So I felt like it's okay if we take a couple spring weeks. Spring break. A couple weeks off a year. Margarita it's, in my mouth. Spring break. It's totally fine. <laughs> I, uh, so I've been watching with my kids. I highly recommend it. The new David Attenborough series, um, One Planet, that's on Netflix. It's so good. So I'm like a huge, huge fan of David Attenborough, but it's like instant way. Oh, is this the one with the walruses? Yes. 
Did you make your kids watch the walrus? They missed that part, thankfully. Oh, they, man. Because they were like, we want to watch Nailed It on, in the other room, which is like somebody just making ugly cakes. Oh, you know? <laughs> oh like, I'm familiar. I'm like, I'm why familiar. would you not want to watch David Attenborough? It's like this constant thing where every time I'm like, it's mommy's turn to pick, and mommy picks David Attenborough, and they're like, oh, why? Why are we, why do we have this horrible, horrible life, you know, where mom picks David Attenborough every single time? And so, um, and so I had a dream. So we saw each other, Chris and I were at like a White House Correspondents Dinner brunch. And so I had a dream that was like sort of a mashup with the with the brunch where I saw David Embra at one of these brunches and I was like, my kids hate you and I don't know what to do. (laughs) My husband comes up to me and was like, I hope you didn't tell them that the kids hate him. And I'm like, I did. I told them I couldn't help it. And it was like, you know, like Margie says something embarrassing, like mashed up with like David Ambrose, mashed up with like White House Correspondents Center. That was what my brain came up with. Wow. Fantastic. (laughs) Um, Have I I missed? So even though Easter has come and gone, I am technically back on Twitter. Yeah. I am basically still not on Twitter. It's I, I will peek and check from time to time and then be like, oh, half my Twitter feed thinks that Bill Barr is has committed treason and the other half thinks that he is Jesus. I think I'm out. I think I'm actually out on this whole medium. Like I'm back now. But I'm not. It's it's bad. So have I missed anything? I don't think so. I didn't prepare my – what have you missed on Twitter? I was like, oh, she can – she knows what it's all about. She can, she can remember what's – she's back. No, hard pass. <laughs> the, the one thing that I did see is I popped back in and um, I guess Vampire Weekend has a new album coming out. And so there's a very good piece at The Ringer on – like the mid aughts indie band craze and like reflecting back on that mm. ten a decade later and how Vampire Weekend is kind of the only band from the gossip girl era that has like withstood the test of time, but could they happen anyhow? I missed this part. That, so that was like a thing I retweeted that was mm-hmm. not about politics. And I was like, hey look, I did a thing that wasn't just posting pictures of my dog. Oh, Twitter goes. Try harder. I found a pleasurable thing on Twitter. Thank you, Peter Suderman, for sharing this with me. But um yeah, I think I'm just not going back. It's uh, I don't miss it. So what about the polls? Did you miss the polls? Uh, I did miss the polls. So in this week's top lines, I am back from Mexico, but we will discuss some public opinion about the situation at our southern border, as well as Mexico's views of the United States. Then we have some genuinely fascinating crosstabs on how people of different parties feel about the Mueller investigation. Now that the report has been out there for a couple of weeks, what are people thinking? Um, it is Joe Mentum time. Uh, since we now have former Vice President Joe Biden in the race, formally polls are showing a bit of a Biden bump. We will unpack what that all means, if anything. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about stress. Who is stressed in America? Um, what does that stress look like? We have some polling on that. And then something that causes me a lot of stress is Game of Thrones. We had Game of Thrones Endgame on Sunday. How are people's expectations holding up about who lives and who dies? This is a pr- an early spoiler warning. If you have not watched the most recent episode of then Game of Thrones, then after we talk about stress, you're going to want to shut the podcast Right. Off. But that's a long way away. That's a away. long way away. Don't <laughs> shut it off yet. Wait until like yes. there's three minutes left. Yes. Okay. All right. So, so let's there dive was, in. There was so much. I mean, we didn't even have to go. I think maybe because of the holiday, like... People also took like polling outlets took a little break or they figured, you know, timed their polling so it wouldn't come out like right in the middle of break or they wouldn't have to do calling over break or something like that. So because there wasn't that much last week, but then the last couple days there's been a ton. So Washington Post, ABC had a poll, CNN had a poll, Suffolk had a poll, um, Quinnipiac had a poll, NBC, uh, PBS, NPR, Marist had a poll. I mean all of these came out within the last like – 72 hours or so, like really, really short order um, on a variety of topics. So I think the first thing, one thing that was highlighted in the post was the border. There was a border. There was a lot on sort of what's happening with Trump and Mueller. And then there was lots of 2020. So what was your take when you saw this? This made like this made news. I mean, this was kind of like a watch out for Dems point 
that the Post was trying to make about the border. Yeah. So this is, you remember back in January when we were winding down the government shutdown? I don't know if it actually ended in January, if it was it went until February, but, you know, it ended and part of the conclusion was the president saying there is a border crisis. I am declaring a national emergency and that is the, the pretext with which I will build my wall. And back then in January, less than a quarter, I mean, 24 percent of Americans said that they viewed illegal immigration across the U.S.-Mexico border as a crisis. Um, that number has increased. It's gone all the way up to 35 percent. And that that jump is not Republicans. There's been a slight jump among Republicans. That jump is mostly Democrats going from 7 percent to 24 percent. And independents, it's a nine-point jump going from 21 to 30. Um, Republicans still make up the bulk of that view, but you now have a quarter of Democrats who view it as a crisis. Now, they may be viewing it as a crisis for very different reasons, right? right? So Republicans may be viewing it as a crisis because there are large numbers of people coming from Central America up through Mexico to the border, and our system is overwhelmed and cannot process them. For Democrats, it may be a crisis because it is also creating a humanitarian issue. There are so many people and our government is not capable of handling all of the asylum claimants. And so – And Trump seems insistent on trying to work around, you know, the various – Things in his way sure. <laughs> of, you know, processing, you know, refugee asylum requests in a, you know, fair manner. Sure. And so there's the the polling on whether people support or oppose the declaration of a national emergency still does not favor Trump. Right. Only 34 percent say they support this. On the question of should the U.S. make it harder, easier or not change how things are regarding the asylum process – um, only 27% think that we should make it easier for people to request asylum, but only 30% think we should make it harder. And I believe earlier this week, the president proposed at it in sort of in that vague, like there were no actual details. It may have just been like a thing the president said, we're going to add a fee if you want to apply for asylum, which would obviously be complicated if, say, you are fleeing the communist government in Cuba and you come here on a raft and you show up and you do not have $100 to pay for – like there are right. reasons why that's potentially from a policy perspective challenging. Um, and, the, and so there are proposals to change the system. There's a sense that, look, the asylum system is supposed to be that if you are fleeing – you are personally being prosecuted. If your government is persecuting you, then you use it. And the Trump administration rolled back some Obama administration changes that would have made it easier to use asylum if you were a victim of domestic assault. Um, right. If you, So there are – basically the question is what do we want the asylum system to be used for? If you are fleeing a country because you have economic hardship, that the economy is bad and you don't – you can't find prospects there, is that justification for making an asylum claim? I think – I would be interested in polling that asks people what are the circumstances under which the asylum process should be used versus – just sort of going through, I would like to apply to live in the United States. Um, I think that'd be an interesting question, like what are the circumstances? Mm -hmm. But at the moment, the Trump administration believes that people are arriving claiming asylum for things that do not fit what the Trump administration's definition of that. Right, that they would weak, if they had their way, they would weaken the asylum program dramatically. To make it, to to narrow, yeah. Make it much harder for people in, you know, most kinds of circumstances to get asylum and also requiring people, I think, to request asylum before they enter. Obviously, very challenging if you are fleeing a government that's persecuting you. Right. Um, And so these questions, this is not a, 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 this is not a knock on the question. The question captures what people think of this phrase, you know. How we handle asylum from undocumented immigrants, right? Easier, harder, kept the same. It is asking about your perspective on this, you know, using sort of a a neutral description that it doesn't go into a lot of detail. It's kind of like when we talk about guns, like should we make it or even abortion or anything else? Like should we make this, you know, keep it the same, harder, easier, stronger, weaker, et cetera? And people are responding to like the one or two words to describe it, but we're not saying what that would actually mean to make things harder, easier, stronger, kept the same. Like, you know, people may not know what does it mean to even keep the same, like, like what do you do people do you really know, what, know the is? what the system is? And for most of these things, the answer is no, because people are you know not following asylum law or gun laws around each state or abortion laws and how those are changing in the various states, et cetera. So, uh, you know, it's useful. It is also just one way of looking at it. I mean, I think this, you know, when it was in the post was seen as a sign like, 
whoa, Democrats are changing their mind, you know, beneath the surface. I don't know if, if it's necessarily showing that. Is it showing some kind of like new worry about this? Maybe, you know, is it showing that it's actually this, you know, that I think the conventional wisdom continues to be. I don't know if this is really true or that these data suggest that, that this is like a warning sign for folks on the left that people, you know, feel differently at odds and wherever people think Democrats are. I don't know if this poll really supports that. But the headline, I think, kind of took people in that direction. So one of the other questions that's in this poll that I will lodge a question wording complaint with, but it's it's not their fault. It's just that I hate this type of question generally is mm. the does Trump's handling of illegal immigration make you more likely to support him for re-election in 2020, more likely to oppose him, or is it not a factor? But we want to know. These are the things we want to know. No, no so no, I, I, but, but I, I believe that I should not criticize without offering a potential <laughs> alternative. And so my alternative to this, because you have 44% saying I'm more likely to oppose Trump because of this issue. But like newsflash, Trump is his job approval is strongly negative amongst 44 percent of Americans already. So if that's the same group of people, then it it doesn't matter to his electoral prospects. Those people were already not going to vote for him. On the other hand, if a large portion of that, this makes me more likely to oppose him, are genuine swing voters who are like, I liked him, but what he's doing down at the border seems screwy to me. That's. That's interesting, but that's different and you can't tease that out. So here is my humble suggestion. I would love to see a question that asks, does Trump's handling of illegal immigration, does it confirm what you already thought about him, right? Which is not the same as it's not a factor. But like, did you already think like, yeah, what Trump's doing at the border? Of course, that's what he's doing at the border for ill or good. Does it basically asking, does it change how you think about him? Right. You could say, it, do you, you could, think about him more positively, more negatively, or is this sort of what you already thought about him? You could also say, how important is this issue as a, you know, issue to your to your vote? And you don't say it's not a support or oppose. Is it one of the most important drivers of how you, you wouldn't say drivers, that's a nerdy pollster thing, but it was the most important things in how you decide whether or not you're going to vote for them, somewhat not to, or not at all important. So you were taking out the like support or oppose, just how important is this issue to you personally as you think about whether or not you're going to vote for him. I just, I am so then you could have supporters and opponents be in the first category. You could have supporters and you could and look opponents in the cross tab in the second who? category. You know, that's another way to do it. Um, but, you know, regardless, these are, co- you know, the, with a lot of these questions, maybe broader public polling writ large, you know, these are questions we want to know the answer to. And people are going to give you an answer and it's their best, you know, assessment of where they are. We don't really know if this is true, especially because we only have this one question. They didn't ask, as you would in an internal poll, like a series of things to kind of figure out which one of these issues is the biggest driver. Sure. We are at, you know, this asks one one issue. And so it's kind of an isolation. But these are the things that people want to know. So sometimes you see them in polls. Yeah, I am just I've become increasingly a big believer that the best way to think about persuasiveness in a poll, if you can't do a pre- and post and like actually seeing movement that asking people to predict their future actions is just dicey. But what you can ask has this, is it in the current moment changing your perceptions? Is this new piece of information or this news story, is it changing in the current moment how you think about this individual for the positive or negative? Or is it, this is sort of what you expected? Right. And I think, you know, a thing I see on Twitter, which, <laughs> and is Tell me, what real. do you see? <laughs> is people complaining like, issue polling stinks. No, Nick. it does not. And I'm always like, no, it, it does not. It just needs to be done well. And, you know, the stuff that's public is, is different than a group trying to figure out, okay, here are the like... 8,000 things people say about this issue. How do we kind of like figure out what resonates with people? How are they hearing it? What do they know about it? What works better? What doesn't work better? That stuff is great. We just, it's not always released out into the wild in its full entirety. Um, but people are, I think, responding to this kind of question when they say it. And again, I'm not disrespect. Look, lots of people ask this question. It's useful to see, you know, t- to look at the cross tabs, which the post may have here because they're, they're, um, there, they have a, a lot of cross steps online. But uh, anyway, um, we did when we did a thing last year on guns, and we had like a split, and we had like ha- you know different versions of like a, 
progressive and conservative messages and that we split just which piece of the progressive message had a different kind of version of guns embedded in it. So you didn't know that that was the whole point of the exercise to see how people moved based on what level of sort of gun message intensity. And so someone wrote about like issue message, issue polling is, you know, meh. But this is different because, you know, we had like we didn't tell people like how much, you know, are you going to vote differently now because of this issue? But, you know. These are things people want to know, so we yeah. ask. So one other poll that I think is interesting, and this is – I've added this right before we went into the studio because I was so fascinated by this in the conversations that we would have with our little – our delegation down in Mexico asking about sort of their views of this issue. And what do you guys think of the U.S.? I mean the U.S. and Mexico have had a complicated relationship – with military interventions and all sorts of stuff over the last uh, many, many decades, uh, centuries. Um, and so what, you know, w- what is our relationship? What what does this look like? I mean, right now, because of our little trade skirmish with China, they're our number one trading partner. Like, wh- what does our relationship look like? And it's fascinating. There is a, 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 a separation between how people in Mexico sort of view Trump and how they view the United States, like they do view those things as different. They view generally the people we were talking to. The president down in Mexico, a lot of the conversations we were having when they would describe AMLO, Lopez Obrador, he's their their new mm-hmm. president down there, extremely Trump adjacent. They'd be like, well, his ministers will come out with a policy and then the next day he'll stand and do his press gaggle at the Palacio Nacional and he'll just sort of like ramble for three hours and reporter and like contradict all of his ministers and everybody's running around and like, oh, "Oh." and all of the Americans are like, yeah, we're 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 familiar with that that dynamic. That sounds. And so and like there are questions about uh, to what extent certain democratic norms are. There are just some interesting parallels is all I'll say. But there this is it's an article. We'll link to it in show notes about. Um, new poll finds Mexicans think U.S. relations are better than before. The secret may be ignoring Trump. Lopez Obrador has sort of like not engaged like, ooh, Trump is bad. And I think part of that is that everybody's trying to get this trade deal done. And so like no one wants to tick anybody else off. But that as this trade deal is potentially maybe possibly going to get signed by all these countries, everybody's just sort of declared detente. And you see in polling there has mm. been a big spike in positive feelings toward the U.S. in Mexico compared to last year. So going back to 1981, in 1981, 51% of Mexicans viewed the U.S. positively. Only 16% viewed uh, us unfavorably. That rose slightly during the kind of 2000s-ish, but still you always had more favorable than unfavorable. It wasn't until 2017, after Trump's election, you can kind of understand why Mexico might, you know, hey, we're going to rip up NAFTA, which is Mexico liked NAFTA. You know, hey, we're right, going to rip right. up NAFTA. Hey, we're going to build the wall. That um, you found suddenly a majority, actually a significant, like over 60 percent of Mexicans having an unfavorable view of the U.S. Um, and less than 40 percent having a favorable view. That has bounced back. 56 percent favorable, only 41 percent unfavorable. And again, some of that was just this idea that like Trump is separate from the United States, mm-hmm. one. Number two is, I think there's a misperception about s- some of the immigration issues that like the the issue of people from Mexico coming to the United States illegally is almost non-existent now that it is, right. that it is all, co- it's all Central America. So there's sort yeah. of a thought like in one of our meetings, someone literally said like, if y'all want to build the wall, like now that you've accepted that we're not paying for it, like Go nuts. Mm. Build build whatever wall you want. Like we don't it, – that's, that's you guys wasting your own – you know, like that there's sort of a sense that like there's Trump and then – but a lot of things Trump says and done, does don't actually affect them. And so it was – it's interesting mm. just that now there seems to be with the new Mexican president not like taking shots at Trump at the moment. So this is probably like – Expecting people to have followed the twists and turns of American politics more closely than than anyone should, <laughs> than yeah. anyone does or should. Um, but was there's this sense? Do you think there's this sense of like, um, you know, Trump has been on this kind of immigration thing, and it's not actually 
it, you know, you could argue as a message for him is not really working. The American people are overall, not everybody, but overall rejecting it as sort of a divisive wedge, given that if people really relied on it and, you know, Republicans relied on it in 18, but that didn't help their chances at the ballot box. And, you know, he is unpopular and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, People are opposed to family separation. They think he's gone too far, you know. Well, I I think there just is a sense that, like, not everyone in America agrees with Trump on the issue. Now, there's one more poll number from the ABC Washington Post poll that we we didn't quite touch on, which was – where do people stand on who is more to blame for the immigration situation, Trump or Democrats in Congress? And on this one, people were pretty split, those who had an opinion. 32% saying Trump, 35% saying Democrats in Congress, 8% volunteered both, 19% volunteered neither, 6% had no opinion. So I think it is still, even though you see, look, you don't have a majority supporting whatever Trump is now proposing on the asylum system, but you do have a lot of people that think, the immigration system is broken and might be willing to give him a little bit of leeway if he's proposing something rather than nothing. And so I think the politics are more complicated. Yeah. And I think that's why, one, I think the president just believes what he believes very strongly. But two, I think the politics of it are more complicated. Um, and that's why you're now having this debate. But then obviously, as the Mexico poll shows, people in Mexico get that, like, not everyone agrees with Trump. Right. But also, I think the, the migration issue, we assume when we think about, oh, our relationship with Mexico, we think of the immigration yes. issue first and foremost. Right. And I think trade is the like yeah. what's going to happen with trade yeah. and jobs. And yesterday I was on Fox News and they were talking about the border situation. And I think I confused – I don't mean to confuse the anchors like they thought I was wrong. I just like – I think they felt that I was going in like a weird direction because I mentioned like, hey, actually the most prosperous parts of Mexico besides Cabo and Cancun are like – by the border mm-hmm. because there's so much trade and there's right. so much economic activity and like people don't get that. That actually it's right, like the right, southern right. part of Mexico. Right, right, right. That where it's like that's where the like there are some states where GD it's they're in a recession and GDP is shrinking. And um anyhow, that there's just I think we we think of Mexico primarily about immigration and they think about us yep. primarily in terms of trade economic and, and trade. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Okay. Good point. Speaking of Trump and not everybody agreeing with Trump. He's kind of the same place he's been. Yep, not that interesting. Job approval still forty three percent. So didn't really go up a ton after the Mueller report. Didn't really go down a ton after the Mueller report. But maybe after Barr's testimony today, no, it's not going to like swing wildly why is tonight. It's going to be the thing if the report was not. That's why. And so the the consistent theme is that Trump's numbers. Not good when compared historically, decent for him. And this is sort of what you find in some new polling that's come out about Mueller and impeachment. Um, CNN has been asking over the last year or so, based on what you have read or heard, do you believe President Trump should be impeached and removed from office or don't you feel that way? Back last June, 42 percent said he should be impeached. 51% said, I don't feel that way. This question had been asked about Barack Obama and George W. Bush at kind of the like height of their unpopularity, I guess, like right on the eve of like really bad midterm losses in their second term. And even in those situations, you only had 30% of people saying George W. Bush should be impeached, about the same number for Obama. So Trump being at 42%, Again, historical comparison, he was in worse shape. Those numbers have fallen now in April 25th. We also had Bill Clinton's numbers were similar to Obama's and Bush's, In fact, even lower. lower. Um, So typically you have about 30% of America saying the president should be impeached, for whatever that's worth, Um, whether it's someone like Barack Obama or someone like George W. Bush or someone like Bill Clinton. For Trump, it was higher. In fact, it it was up to 47% back in September 2018, like 47 to 48. That's, that's not territory you want to be in. It has cooled off. So now as of April 25th to 28th, 37% say Trump should be impeached and removed from office. 59% say that they don't feel that way. Um, there are some, I think ABC Washington Post also asked this. They said, uh, should Congress begin impeachment proceedings? Again, back in August of last year, you had slightly more say yes than no. Nowadays, it is 56% saying no, 37% saying yes. So 
the this is, I think, an interesting I'd be curious for your take on the Democratic side, how to manage this now that it does seem that Trump is, again, in historical comparisons, more people want to see him impeached than the past three presidents at their peak. But it's better for Trump. And now a clear majority says, no, let's not go that way. So, I mean, well, a couple things. Well, one, there's not just the impeachment question. There's a variety of other questions here on. And those are fairly consistent in that they are, you know, I, I don't think that we have historical comparisons, but they don't look – they're not good for Trump. They're not even – you yeah. know, they're not good for Trump. Like people think – and this was in the Washington Post ABC – that the report was fair and even-handed. Like we talked about a couple weeks ago we in, that we had seen in, in Navigator polling that's here now in a lot of other public polling that people don't see that the report cleared or exonerated Trump. That's true in the Washington Post ABC poll. That's true in the – I think in the NPR Marist poll um, that came out this morning. So, you know, it, this is a clear – you know, and that's even – with the confusion, you know, one might call the confusion that came from the bar summary of the Mueller report, leading some to be able to, you know, to feel like they could say that there, well, at least the president could say that he was exonerated, even though it, did, it said did not exonerate. But even with all that confusion, you know, you still have majorities that say questions still exist or, you know, they say that the investigation was fair. They say that the investigation did not exonerate Trump or that he's lied to the American people or that he probably obstructed justice. I mean, the polling really all consistently points toward that, even a you know, majority saying um, that Congress should still investigate in one of these polls. So, you know, to me, that shows like there is not like there is not the sense like, OK, that's, you know, mm -hmm. wrap that up, you know, that's all. Let's just put that to bed. There's nothing else to see here. I mean, that's not what the polling shows. So, you know, so the question is, I think, what comes next? I mean, there's there, there's still lots more to discuss. There's still more entities that are doing investigation, whether it's Congress and so on. There's more stuff to find and out and learn. Um, and, you know, so that's one question. And then the other question is, you know, what's the public opinion hurdle that people are looking for, are they not looking at public opinion? They're looking to follow the facts and see where they take them because, you know, no one's above the law. And so, you know, so I think that's what leaves, you know, there to be, you know, some continuing questions about what happens next. But ultimately, I think more Americans than not are on the same page. Like there's, you know, there's evidence that the president lied or tried to get in the way of the investigation and Congress should continue to investigate. And I think that's enough of a mandate to continue to have these conversations. The, the challenge Democrats are going to face, I think, is comes out of this crosstab from the NPR PBS NewsHour Marist poll where they ask, do you think special counsel Robert Mueller's report investigating possible wrongdoing and Russian interference in the 2016 election should or should not lead to hearings in Congress to impeach President Trump? Overall, 53 percent say should not. But for Democrats, 70 percent say should. And so that to me seems like it is a going to be a challenge in the Democratic primary as 70% of the party wants President Trump to face impeachment. And that's not where the majority of everybody else sits. And that seems to me like that's going to be an issue. There's also the most fascinating crosstab for me in all of this was on that question of do you think Mueller's investigation was fair or unfair? On most of these questions, the crosstabs break down in ways you would expect, right? Should Trump be impeached or not impeached? Guess what? Republicans don't think he should. Democrats right. do, right? Like, so There's a lot a of this gender is difference by independents in all the NPR Marists. I don't know if that's like an inside. That's thing, true, and in fact, it was independent, independent women, women are the most likely on this question, more so than any group of Democrats, to say they thought that Mueller's investigation was fair. Yeah, so I don't that know if that's if you say if you say, look, Mueller's investigation is done. It found that things were done that we would prefer presidents not to do, but none of them rose to the level of criminal charges. On this question, you have a two-thirds of Democrats saying, yes, we believe the investigation is fair, which surprised me. I thought that it would go lower after the report did not really show, like bring charges against Trump. Similarly, I thought that it would be more rehabilitated with Republicans. And Republicans are actually kind of split. 42% of Republicans say Mueller's investigation was fair. 47% say it was not fair, that even though the report is done, you know, you still have the president saying witch hunt, witch hunt, witch hunt. That is still 
obviously resonant with about half of Republicans. So it is fascinating to me that the question of like, hey, Mueller's done. Let's just trust his report, even though Republicans have championed it as, hey, it exonerates the president. They are also the most likely to say the report's conclusions were not fair. So it's that to me right. was the most like kind of interesting complication in the public opinion around all this. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, and the, you know, the other thing that I don't think I've seen public polling on, but it's important because you mentioned like, well, what does this mean for Democrats too, you know, which is this does support for impeachment among Democrats translate to Democrats being in primaries, you know, saying that this is a there there's going to be a cost attached in a primary for not being outspoken on impeachment. And none of these data ask that or can can point to that. So I think that's an important reminder that like this is where Democrats are is not the same as like Democrats are going to go crazy if X candidate yeah. or Y candidate doesn't say this or that. Well, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll talk a little bit about 2020. Are you good with people? Maybe you're organized or have a knack for numbers. Well, then chances are you've got skills that could lead to a new career. A Google Career Certificate can help you get a foot in the door with top employers in fast-growing fields like IT support, project management, data analytics, and user experience design. It's professional-level training developed and taught by Google employees. And it's all online so you can learn around your schedule. Put your skills to work. Go to grow.google certificates. All right, we're back. So we've got uh, some new data out from a whole bunch of different news sources on what's going on with the Democratic primary. But at Echelon, we have some new data as well. Echelon Insights is now doing our verified voter omnibus. Basically, we have um, a web survey and it's an online survey, but it is matched to the voter file. That's cool. We have panelists who we know their voter history. This is all... These are folks where we explain what an omnibus is. Ah, to yes. So, thank you for that. <laughs> I would have just kept going. So, an omnibus basically doing a survey is real expensive, and if you want to just ask one or two questions, it's hard to just do that because you have to ask. Like, let's say I want to do a survey of Americans, and I want to know what everybody's favorite color is and what their favorite thing to order uh, from Chinese food is, and I just want to ask those two questions. But if all I do is ask those two questions, I have to ask. Everything necessary to make sure, am I talking to just 18-year-old? What if right. I just want to talk to registered voters? You have to ask a question about, are you a registered voter? Do I want any cross-tabs at all? Do I want to know men versus women, young versus old, rural versus urban versus suburban? So those each of those things adds a question. Right. So suddenly, the setup of doing a new project is Yeah, the cost of programming, the cost yeah. of the call center. Like the most expensive interview in a survey is interview number one. And then, like you diminish, you know, right. there's diminishing costs for each subsequent thing. So if you just have two questions, you actually still wind up needing to ask like 15 questions. Right. So better to have your two questions, and instead of paying for the whole big old survey, you just add your two questions to someone else's survey. So what Echelon does is we will have a survey that we will put into the field every month that will already have all of those demographic questions. It will already have all of the necessary screening questions, and some of the basic things that everyone would want to ask. Right. Presidential job approval, fa you know, th just those sorts of basics. Right. But then you, if you're a trade association, if you're a company, if you're a curious individual with money to burn, you can say like, hey, I'm going to pay you a, you know, a small amount of money and you add this question to your survey. And then in the end, what you get back from Echelon or whoever's fielding the omnibus is the results of your questions plus – the questions that everybody gets. Right. So all the demographics and all of the whatever. So this is a new thing Echelon is doing. And to have people who you know are registered voters with like their voter registration, like so what congressional district they live in, which is not always easy to do online. Right. And I don't know if you have other political geography or scores or modeling or whatever. But yeah. So this is what's helpful then is it lets us look at or if things Patrick just like, has that memorized for everybody in America. <laughs> honest to God, that would not surprise me. That would zero percent surprise me. So what we can do is we can take a look at what do people think about the Democratic primary. It's national. 
which national primary polls are of limited utility because the primary doesn't happen nationally. But we want to know. But we want to know. <laughs> yes. And this will also help us understand the demographics. And we can look at not yeah. just people that say, you know what, gosh, I'm I'm planning to vote in the Democratic primary. But we can actually look and say, like, OK, are you someone that voted in the midterms? Are you someone that's voted in a Democratic primary in the past? Are you what? registered <laughs> as a Democrat? Or, you know, do we think that you're a Democrat if you're going to say that registration? Those sorts of things. Yes. So we can have a more complex view of who we actually think the likely Democratic right. primary voters are. Right. So we asked a ballot question. We found Joe Biden in the lead at 26 percent among Democrats and Democratic leaners. Again, that's not necessarily likely, like all the likely primary voters. Um, we found that Biden does best among Midwestern Democrats. Surprise, surprise. Um Bernie Sanders comes in second at 22 percent. His strongest group is 18 to 29-year-olds, 35 percent. Beto O'Rourke is kind of – we found Beto O'Rourke, Pete Buttigieg, Kamala Harris in kind of this next tier. Beto having a slight bump among men. Um, anyhow, it's you can take a look. It's all in Patrick's Twitter feed. From my perspective, you know, we've talked about how – In 2020, everybody wants to focus on the horse race polling, but some of the more interesting stuff strategically is not the horse race. Right. We also asked, what kind of Democratic candidate would you prefer? And instead of saying someone who is progressive or someone who's conservative, we wanted to use like Obama as kind of the center point. So would you rather have a candidate with with policies more liberal than Barack Obama, Mm -hmm. a candidate with the same kind of policies as Barack Obama, and a candidate with policies more conservative Barack Obama? I I actually need to ask Patrick if we have like a Chapo trap house like – Cross tab in here, but like the you know the view, right. did you think that the Obama era was like betraying liberal? I mean that's I mean, not the question. Here, so I, I think that's cool because that's like I think that's useful a useful you know metric. At the same time, I also feel that it's clouded by the fact that you know so many Democrats are like what. What? Can, where do I sign up to have Obama be president? Sure, again? sure, like, sure. Like, well, and we find for the love of God, I can't take it. You know? Well, so, like it will come. Uh, whatever Obama you got, like I'll take, I'll take it. It will know? come as no surprise to you that sixty-two per, or fifty-nine percent of Democrats say, "Give me Obama again, yes. just m- more of that, please." Yeah. I'll, I'll have. A, is, can I order a second round from yes. the bar? Because I'd like that. Yes. Um, what I do think is fascinating, and this was something I think in the CNN poll, which we can get to in a second. I think they asked, you know, are you very liberal, somewhat liberal or moderate slash conservative? And they kind of found that the somewhat liberal and the moderate slash conservative actually agreed with each other much more than the somewhat liberal agreed with the very liberal. Right. Just real fascinating. Mm. We kind of found a similar ish dynamic that if you want someone who's more liberal than Obama, which we found, I mean, we're talking an N of 82 here. Right. This is like all the caveats, but 40% of them wanted Bernie Sanders. Meanwhile, among the other groups, if you liked Obama, you'd like to order another a second round, or someone more conservative, Joe Biden was was more your guy. Um, and again, we had Beto O'Rourke doing, I think, more strongly in our poll than most other public polls, but these are d- variations of like three, two to three to four points. I mean, not huge. Right. Um, we also asked an open As with all Democratic horse race polling yeah. currently. Yes. Um, we asked, why do you support your candidate? And we let people do open-ended responses and then we coded them. And so there were a couple different – do you like their policies? Do you like their experience and background? Pete Buttigieg of the 7% that said they liked him, almost half of the answers had something to do with him being young. Mm. Um, for Biden voters, it was overwhelmingly about experience uh, – Able to beat Trump was something that we sort of coded for, and and some of that is like mixed in with things like experience or policies. Um, but yeah, this was we, we've got all of this stuff really at Patrick Ruffini on Twitter. He's got it all. Um, it was fun stuff. That was cool. I mean, and the, you know, the database looks cool, which you know, it's good, it's helpful. Um, I. I'm in favor of it. I definitely like it. And look, what you found is similar. I think Morning Console has it, which you know we've talked about it before. Which is, you know, it, what's the, what's the, you know, is there overlap? Right. I think you have this here. There's overlap between like Sanders and Biden supporters. That yeah. doesn't that it does not seem. It seems incongruous to people who kind of think about their various approaches and such. Um, 
but yet for voters, is it a name ID thing or is it some other? I mean, and I think it's good to kind of match up like their sense of where the candidates are ideologically, but also that may not be what people are responding to. They may be responding to something else like youth or something else. Um, it doesn't necessarily need to be where they are on policies. Like there are some polls like the CNN poll and I think um, uh it might be the Suffolk poll, also some others that have tested a variety of different policies in their Dem primary polls, like how important to you is it a candidate does, you know, supports Green New Deal or Medicare for All, or, the, you know, sometimes they explain what those policies are, sometimes they don't. Um, in the poll questions, it's, you know, it's a sense of, like, here's here's what we think Democratic primary voters care about, but we're not actually, you know, I don't, without necessarily, again, this is what an internal research program would explore, which is what actually do Democratic primary voters care about? It may not be a list of policies that they're going to go through like a checklist and then decide which candidate matches up. It may be something else entirely, especially if it's driven by what happens in the early states, because the early states develop different relationships with the candidates than, you know, folks who are voting in later states. Yeah. Um, One other thing that I would just add, and this was, I I did dip a toe back into the tweeting about politics pool earlier, like yesterday. Um, And it was after this 2020 CNN poll came out with Biden at 39, Sanders at 15, Warren at 8, Buttigieg at 7, and like, honest to God, two dozen other names (laughs) listed, Um, which now that I'm looking at this list... I'm not going to say anything. Okay. Listener, no, <laughs> just don't worry. Don't worry, listeners. I promise this cryptic, my cryptic pause there will, this will pay off. Unlike, nope, and I almost just did a Game of Thrones spoiler. Okay. All right. I'm just, I, the last 30 seconds have been a fail. Don't mm. cut it. I want the listeners to feel my shame. I'm confused. Um, it's okay. I'll explain when okay. we get off the air. Uh, so one thing that I sort of posited was, <laughs> this will pay off. We're, Unlike yeah, no, we're here. We're ready. We're ready, we're ready for it. Rich and I are like, we're ready for the payoff. Uh, no. So I, what I basically posited was, look, if Biden's at 39% and you've got Sanders at 15 and then you've got a whole mess of people in single digits, is this going to be, if we look at the last two primaries where you had a party with a bajillion people running, is it going to be like 2016 where you had like... Jeb is this kind of weakish establishmentish front runner who was like immediately overwhelmed by like every like just from the fir- moment of the first debate was just like that was his high water mark and then right. it just fell and Trump sort of took over and there was churn underneath but like Trump wound up winning or will this be more like 2012 where Romney started off in the the sort of front runner seat and even though there was churn and even though there were moments when other people in debates would like spring up and you'd have Santorum win Iowa and Gingrich win South Carolina and stuff like Romney just kind of held steady and kept growing his vote share even as there was tons of churn and Herman Cain 999 and all sorts of other stuff can can like will the Democratic primary look more like that will Biden just sort of hang on to his you know third to 40 percent of the party and slowly grow it as the debates go on even as the churn underneath him can you know consume certain candidacies or will he jeb it up and this is his high water mark and from the debates people will gravitate to other candidates and he will fade. Now, my tweet said, will it be like, and I posted the real clear politics graphics. Mm-hmm. Will it be like 2012 Republicans? Will it be like 2016 Republicans? Or will it be like something else? Question mark. I don't know the answer. And I immediately had a bunch of people who don't have reading comprehension skills that were like, you can't say it's Jeb. He's not like Jeb. Jeb was never at 30 some percent. And I'm like, guys, my tweet Ended in a question mark. Okay, so CNN asked about that. Well, this is not exactly. I had to rant. So I have two things. Twitter was the worst. So your response to that? Then I have a. I have something on the open end coding. Okay, so CNN asked a question. Are, which comes closest, right, about the how you feel about the field? There are one or two candidates you would rather see win the nomination over others, or you see the field is wide open. It's too early to say who you're going to support. Um, and a majority, 59% say the field's wide open. In 15, they asked this question, and majority of Republicans said that there are one or two candidates you'd rather see win a nomination. Later in 15, earlier in 15, it was evenly divided. So mm-hmm. actually, Democrats feel quite a bit different than where Republicans were. Now, that doesn't mean to say it can't change, but that's, you know, that's where it is. Um 
there's another question I can't find in our script because there was just so much. But there was something that one outlet said, and I think we need to be careful with some of these questions that are asking people to play like political consultant. There was a question like, should the Democrats nominate someone who can reach out to independents or should they? And I'm like, well, that's just that just seems like. I mean, yes. Yeah. <laughs> like they should. <laughs> Every just, party should. Like, I mean, that's, it's, it's I mean, it's like uh, asking people to play political consultant in a question just because you want to have, you know, just because you find the answer interesting. Now, you're in your omnibus. You had a like, well, why did you vote for this person? You had an open end. People could say whatever they want. I like their hair. You know, I like their mom, whatever. And um, and there's two ways to do it. You could certainly do a pre-coded list, you know, where you give people a list of like 10 things, but then you are making assumptions about what the things are. Or you could just have people say whatever they want. And then you code it afterwards. If they're, you know, it's not like one is right or one is wrong necessarily. They have different strengths and weaknesses. And that I have to say, though, I have to bang the gavel on this question that was in New Hampshire in the Suffolk poll for the Globe. And I get that they wanted to ask an Elizabeth Warren question because it was the Globe and it's New Hampshire. So, like, that part is fine. They didn't ask a follow- – it was a primary ballot question. And then the, of the people who were not choosing Elizabeth Warren, they said, well, what's your primary reason for choosing – for not choosing Elizabeth Warren? And they had a coded list and then lot the, – so the coded list is she can't be Trump, okay? The Native American heritage issue makes her too vulnerable. You know, not a lot of people, you know, not a lot of people pick that. I mean, that got like 5%, but okay. And then she doesn't excite me. She comes off as angry and her policies are too liberal. And they didn't have what people said in the open ends, which probably would have done quite a bit better if they had been in the list, which is I don't know enough about her, you know, like a pretty basic one, and prefer somebody else. Right. And so I so I know that people, ha- you know, I just it's just not to fault anybody. Right. Because people have right. But everybody writes a bum question. right? <laughs> but this question to me feels like it just like pains my it's just like a snails on the blackboard blackboard to my feminist ears. Like, so like it's what I mean, might as well say, like, she doesn't drink a beer the way I like. I mean, it's just like it's so like it's to say she doesn't excite me and she seems angry is like to me is is I wish it had been, I wish it had been a little bit different. I the the better thing to have included would have at least been. So I don't know what I'm going to get for lunch today. I am feeling like I will probably get a salad. I'll probably go to Sweet Green and get my beloved hummus tahina. Why do you hate salad? You must hate But if I salad. don't, if I decide <laughs> instead because... to go to Potbelly, it's not because I think Sweet Green is too angry and liberal. <laughs> right. It's just because I've decided that I would like to eat it's happy less and liberal. <laughs> green. I love sweet green. Anyway, so um yeah, so I just feel like that needed a little bit of a, a gut check. Also Look at those percentages. I know, I know, I know. Two. <laughs> that's all right. It goes out to the hundredth place. Fine. I don't, that's fine. Oh, I'm, I I'm hurt in that, my heart. That doesn't, that doesn't bother me as much. That I mean, I know it's not AP rule, but like I wouldn't pound the gavel or call anyone out for however they're showing. They've been, they, you know, people have their ways of doing it and like, you know, it's a free country. But like the, the but the watch out for the, watch out for the tropes about the ladies. That's all I'm saying. <sighs> wow. <laughs> okay. I don't mean to come off as angry, but that's just my take. <laughs> well, hey, so speaking of angry, do we want to take a yes. quick break and then come back yes. and talk about this Gallup poll on yes. anger? Yes. Plus Game of Thrones? Yes. Okay. Support for this podcast comes from Invent Together. According to studies, less than 13% of all inventors who hold a U.S. patent are women. Black and Hispanic college graduates patent at half the rate of their white counterparts. But we can fix that by increasing participation in innovation and patenting by underrepresented groups. It would quadruple the number of American inventors and increase annual GDP by almost $1 trillion. Invent Together is a coalition of organizations, companies, universities, and concerned citizens committed to ensuring that everyone has the opportunity to invent and patent. Because the more diverse the American patent system gets, the stronger and more successful our nation will become. What can you do to help diverse inventors patent and unleash economic opportunity? Find out at inventtogether.org. Learn more and take action today. 
All right, we're back. And now we're going to talk a little bit about Gallup's new polling on stress, worry, and anger. This is from the Gallup World Poll, although it is just findings from the U.S. displayed here. I assume you can find the global results yes. on their website. This may be something I'll take a look at, you know, on my lunch break while I'm eating a salad and or a sandwich. Or maybe I'll just go crazy and go get, like, <laughs> some lamb vindaloo. There are mm, different delicious. lists, the different lists of countries, depending on whether you're talking about anger or stress or worry. But anyway, continue. Um, they ask people, US, this is among U.S. adults, but the chart says 15 to 29. I wonder if that's a typo or I wonder if they actually ask teenagers. Um, hmm. The Basically, they find 64% of those under the age of 30 say they are stressed. Uh, basically, stress drops when you get over 50. Is that like the the, the retirement folk living in the Jimmy Buffett retirement community, just chilling and living their best life and not feeling stress? I guess. Must right? be Or nice. they're just like, I, you know, this has happened to me 400 times over the course of my life, and I'm just no longer from I've frazzled by it. <laughs> uh, for worry, it is people under the age of 50 much more worried than those over the age of 50. And anger. Anger is the highest among those under 30. 32% say that they have, have felt. And this is the question is, did you experience the following feelings during a lot of the day yesterday? And there's an income gap on stress and worry, which I would have expected. But there's no income gap really on anger. There's, and there's no anger gap on presidential approval. They find that if you disapprove huh. of Trump, you are more likely to worry and be stressed. But yeah. you are no more likely to be angry. Well, okay. <laughs> <laughs> sure. That's good. That's good for you guys. <laughs> How nice for you. <laughs> okay. I'm, I am glad that less than a quarter of Americans felt anger yesterday. Yeah, no, That's I mean, good. It That's is good. good news. I am happy for my fellow, for the 75% of my fellow Americans. <laughs> Do you not, you, must be nice for you. No. Somebody um, please let me know what it's like. <laughs> um, okay. To close out. Yeah. Spoiler territory. If you have not. If you've made it this far, then you give up. Ben. Watched. You've given up. The Sunday night episode of Game of Thrones entitled The Long Night. Shut it down here. Has everybody in this room, may I discuss this and I will not upset you? Okay. What I was saying before, when I was trying to guess Margie's poll, like who on that list, whatever, I said, this is going to pay off, unlike the entire Bran and the Night King plotline in Game of Frickin' Thrones, where there is no payoff yet, and it is so dumb, and I was infuriated. I'm really glad Arya killed the Night King. Right. So this was— I did not expect so much to happen. In the, I'm, like, checking my watch because we, like, paused it to wait for, like, a guest to come. And then I'm like, did we pause it for, like, 45—what is happening? Like, how long is this thing? Like, it's long. 10.30. Like, I think we only paused it for, like, you know, two minutes, you know? <laughs> so there was a— So I did not expect it to end quite so— Decisively. Quartz did a poll. Uh, this was two, this is almost 2,500 responses. Um, it is data collected from Quartz. It's unclear to me that this is like a genuinely no, random sample. They put sample, some but, thought into it. But this is what is really cool about this is they say, okay, rank who is most likely to die in the next episode. Episode. Two of season eight was very heartwarming, charming. Everybody's yeah. sitting around the castle, and you were like, huh, these people are all freaking dead next week. Well, you knew week. they weren't going to all die, because then, like, what would be the point? Uh, they could all die? I don't know. Then what were you going to do for the last, like, four episodes? Like, just watch, you know, like a bunch of people you've never heard so of before. Cersei marries the Night King. <laughs> becomes the Night Queen. The end. Cersei's, Cersei and Sansa are the only people with functioning brains in this show anymore, <laughs> let me just say. And Arya, like... Come on, ladies. Yeah. This, uh, nope, I almost just said something about Endgame, and I'm not going to spoil that because that is in unacceptable behavior, and people still should have another week to get into theaters. Fair enough, yeah. So I won't go there. Sure. But um, most likely to die on the list, number one was Theon Greyjoy. R.I.P. What yeah. is dead may never die unless you're Theon Greyjoy. <laughs> Sorry, Ironborn. Uh, number two, my girl Brienne of Tarth. Yeah. Magically covered in zombies 
multiple times. I know. Every time you turn, you're like, there she is again. She's still there. Brienne's toast again. Nope. She's still fine. Nope. Now Brienne. Nope. She's fine. Yeah. So Brienne somehow lived. Jamie barely got any screen time. Same kind of deal. I mean, if I like work out with like tiny weights after like 45 minutes or I'm like, I can't do it anymore. You know, <laughs> like Brienne has got like wielding whatever for like eight hours, you know, well, with precision and. She's also a, I mean, I'm sure you're a super badass fighter, no, but I'm Brianna not. Tari is a super <laughs> badass fighter. I'm like, how is it possible? But still. How often, I, how, did, what, how did she train for that? Calling, a little, calling <laughs> like mid-level baloney on that. Same thing with Jamie. Cersei wasn't in the episode. The Night King was in fifth. Yeah. R.I.P. the Night King, I guess. Yeah. All right. Would have been super nice that's to fine. know what... His point was, <laughs> whatever, it's fine. <laughs> Write the books, George. Okay. Number six, I am fascinated by how high Samuel Tarley is up on this list because there is a theory that I think is very strong, and we will discuss this in the distribution of responses to this question. There is a strong contingent in which I consider myself that says, Samuel Tarley's the least likely to die because he is George R.R. R. Martin's avatar in the books. Ah. That it is extremely likely that this all ends with Sam somewhere alive being like, I think I'm going to write a book about what I just witnessed. And right, like, right, right, right. it's Game of Thrones. Right, right, right. Um, You know, very Hobbit-esque. Sure. Tolkien-y. Okay. So, so what's cool about this quartz poll, back to the poll, ending my Game of Thrones rant, Mm -hmm. is they show the distribution of responses. They asked people to rank all 12 of these in likelihood of character's death. Right. And you can see that, like, Brienne, everybody thought Brienne was toast. She was over, like, that distribution is very heavily skewed toward people ranking her one and two. Yeah. On the list of, you know, one through 12. Uh, Meanwhile, Samuel Tarly pretty even across the distribution. Very few thought he was highly likely to die. But then there's a big spike at 12, people putting him at the bottom of the list. And those must be all the people Uh, like me who are like, no way Sam's biting it because he's he's got to make it to the end to be the book writer guy. The only other person whose distribution was so skewed that direction was Jon Snow, which I think is a little foolish, guys. But I get it. His plot line's not fully resolved. So, okay. Um, The only other person that... Jamie Lannister, his distribution was skewed toward, yeah, he's probably going to die. Um, but Brienne was definitely, definitely the worst of it all. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that that was not the case. So, yeah. I yeah. Think that's good. More Brienne. More time to ship that, that Brienne-Jamie magic. <laughs> I know. Right? they all head down to <laughs> King's know. Landing for whatever the hell's going to happen next I week. I know. I know. Okay. All right. So what's on the trend line this week? Uh, I'm going to be talking to Ashley Spillane, who oh, yes. I, I know Ashley adore, Spillane. who does all kinds of interesting. She, I met her when she was like running Rock the Vote. Yeah. And now she does all sorts of interesting like political engagement she is, stuff. Yes. So she's going to be in studio with me, which That's will be cool. fun. We she is couple. super fun. She is super fun. I love her. Um, and we've got a couple other potential interviews lined up. Um, but can't quite announce them yet because it's not fully locked in. But, yeah, listen, Saturday, 10 a.m. on Sirius XM's POTUS Channel 124. Great. Well, I don't have any – I got to go – I got to lunch. But I enjoyed hearing all your Game of Thrones theories. <laughs> I did not. Sorry for I, that. No, that was good. I was like, do I tell her I have lunch? No, I'm like, no, this is good. I'm enjoying this. Okay. I hope it wasn't a noon lunch. It's all right. It's fine. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I should have said it before. I cut it close. It's around the corner. All right. Thanks. Bye.